I am so excited about the future. And I'm just like grateful that I live in this time and age, right? Of like, I get to see the world develop at such a rapid pace now. And I'm just, I'm super pumped to be here. Welcome back to This Week in No Code. I am JJ, your co-host, and I'm here with my co-host, David Pal. David, welcome back. Buenos dias from Buenos Aires. <laughs> we are happy to have you back with us today, David. As you can imagine, audience, we have another really exciting show for you this time. Last week, we had a fantastic talk with David, the CEO of Clyde. If you haven't checked out that episode yet, please do. I think it's one of our best from the feedback so far. So definitely mm -hmm. go and check that out. But for this episode, we have so much for you. Of course, we're going to hit on the open AI drama because my God, yeah. is that juicy. But we're also going to talk about a lot of new tools and some other controversy that is hitting the tech atmosphere or the tech ecosystem uh, with TL Draw, AppSumo controversy, Notion AI. And then we'll also get into our guest of the day, who is Marius, one of the managing directors at Techstars Seattle. He is a previous entrepreneur with a large exit. We're going to hear about his story and then also his role at Techstar Seattle, what he looks for in companies when he's looking to invest in them, what he thinks about no code, where he thinks no code and AI are going, and so much more. Without any further ado, let's get into the no code news of this week with David. All right. Happy to be back. Excited to dive into some of the juicy drama a little bit. It was odd to be away during that. Well, let's get a start with TL Draw, formerly a whiteboarding tool, tldrdraw.com, became tldraw.ai. Basically, what they've done is they've said, hey, you're drawing stuff on our whiteboard. What if we can turn these whiteboard drawings into actual websites? And so they've actually integrated this UI builder drawer kind of process and made it into a real website, real HTML, let's, let's say, using uh, OpenAI integration. And so you can see in this video, people are just drawing, annotating, giving directions, and asking for updated creations, and it produces this HTML. Really cool feature. Let's also remember that you have to then do something with this HTML, right? They're <laughs> like, great, I have a website. Everyone go to tldraw.com and see my site. This is, this is a, a cool little feature. Um, I love these little explorations into AI. Although I will say there's an article that if you search for no code or not no code, AI builds websites, mm -hmm. you'll find an NVIDIA post from 2018 like five years ago saying ai can now build websites <laughs> so you know like it's all coming full circle obviously it's now a lot easier with chat gpt to do a lot of these things gpt v i guess is probably what makes it easiest with v. but it's still really fun to play with more than it is actually something i look forward to yeah i i think it's it's something like, right, like it's pretty magical to see it happening, uh, but you're right. It's just the HTML. Then you need to do a lot with it to really connect that. You need to stage it, host it, all that kind of stuff. Like there's so much more to it 
than just that. But I think it just shows that we're moving quickly. Things are literally coming to life now and it's really exciting. And this is kind of like one of those steps. Could be interesting to see how, you know, this can be used as like an education component. If I want to learn how to write HTML, I can draw what I'm thinking and I can see it get created and then look at the code and go, oh, this is how I might do that. And then you kind of learn a little bit more, right? And then ask GPT, chat GPT, take the code, drop it in and say, can you explain this to me? Is actually a kind of neat exploration into this. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's what they were aiming for. They were hoping for some virality, which... And so it definitely got some some notice, but we'll we'll see if they ever do anything more with this. Yeah, I I think that's a great point. Let's move on to our next one with AppSumo. So this last week, one of our bubble builders, he tried to submit his bubble application built on AppSumo, right? You know, AppSumo is a platform where you can like offer a discount to the masses, almost like a Groupon, but for software, right? And immediately he was rejected saying, sorry, we don't accept apps that have been built on Bubble. It was like an automatic reject. And he posted on Twitter. And that's kind of when I saw it and said some things to the CEO and to my community, my audience. He's essentially saying like, what's going on here? Like, this is crazy, right? And the CEO responded, apologizing for the inconvenience, but ultimately said that Bubble apps affects their customer satisfaction and that their customers have asked for this not to happen. And there was a lot of backlash. There's like, I think, you know, what I went out and said is that this creates prejudice of like your tech stack and your tech stack is not good enough and no better than the others. And so no matter if it's a good app or a bad app, we're just going to reject you right away. Um, And I have checked out the app myself. It's a really great app. It's it's really well, really well done. Uh, I actually worked with the creator to help kind of put it out to my audience to say, hey, because that didn't work out, let's try it here. Um, But I think generally just pulling it back, like companies, denying apps across the board based on a tech stack. And you can make the the case that like Shopify is a tech stack. Like there's so many different tech stacks. It just doesn't make sense that they're picking Bubble and some of these other ones to, to do it to. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the history of AppSumo rejecting Bubble apps. I can imagine that like a lot of people putting out things on AppSumo made it's easier to get something to MVP that's not great, but kind of working on the app Sumo and you offer a lifetime deal. And then three months later, you're gone. I could see how that's a bad experience. I can see how it's maybe easier to write bad apps with bubble than with code. I, I don't know. Like, I mean, it seems like a stretch of the imagination that like one necessarily leads to the other. Right, like you can write bad apps with code too. Yeah. Right. I do think there it does make sense to do some checking. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if I was AppSumo, I'd say, oh, this is built on bubble. Let me verify this. Let me ask some more questions, mm-hmm. not just auto reject. Mm-hmm. You know, most marketplaces have this problem. I tried to buy an app on microacquire. Okay. And the guy, you know, who said he had all this revenue and had all these statistics of all these paint views, he had actually just like bought a template hmm. and reskinned it and said, Oh, hmm. this is mine. I wrote this, I built this, but kind of didn't really. Mm-hmm. And so when I went in to like figure out how it was actually working, it was, you know, you couldn't really do anything with it because it was built with this template. 
Mm-hmm. And so maybe there were some templates that were being sold or I don't, you, I don't know. You know what what I would say one is that this is a very outdated way of thinking just to be able to auto reject. And you know, they said it's based on quantity and they can't check them all and they need to make sure it meets their quality. And I respect that, right? You, you need to make sure it hits your quality satisfaction. Sure. But just rejecting apps across the board without actually looking at it seems to me more like your systems are outdated and you need a better way to like actually find quality things for your members that you're not yeah. doing. And also like as a platform, they make, they rely on these creators in order to give these products to their audience. And so you would think that they would support their creators because, and, and in fact, they don't, they're actually only really catering to the, the people buying and kind of pushing their creators aside seemingly. So I don't like any of that, but I understand also that like, I think generally with no code apps, bubble included that we can build faster and it's mostly first time builders building. And so the, the quality that they might be pushing to places like AppSumo might just not be there because it's the first time building an app. And so I could see that like a stereotype coming along, right? Whereas compared to like, you know, I built this on a traditional stack It takes, you know, programmers that have been doing this for a while in order to bring this stack together. And so it's just better tested because of such. So I could see that playing out, but I don't know. I, I just didn't love seeing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like they were able to make a line to help filter things out. So they took it, right? Like you can't just say, oh, a, a poorly coded app shouldn't make it onto the site. That's true, right? They shouldn't allow any bad apps on their site. Yeah. But they just can't tell a bad, a poorly coded app from a good app without like some other test. But with Bubble, they can say, we've had experiences where people have built bad apps with Bubble, so we'll just filter yeah. And that goes to show, like, this is totally true as a stereotype of Bubble. Not that they build bad apps, but, like, think about how many comments get made that nobody builds pretty apps on Bubble. And that just goes to show that, like, we all, when we launch things as a Bubble community, no-code community, we are representing everyone else in the industry, and we should be striving to do our best so that these things don't happen. Yeah, I think that's totally it. I think it's a new technology. And, you know, their main persona is entrepreneurs building for the first time. Entrepreneurs see this opportunity. They finally build something. They submit something that just isn't there. And eventually they're just like, we're just going to reject it all. Unfortunately, as sad as it is. Anyways, I think we can move on to the next thing. We've talked about Notion before. Notion is a productivity tool, kind of a blank canvas editing notebook automation system. Empowers a lot of teams to collaborate in a lot of interesting ways. They've added some AI tools for uh, assistance and writing, making it easier to fill out these pages that they have. And also it helps to avoid the blank page problem, kind of starting from scratch. Uh, But now actually they've also added a bunch of other tools in the data side of things, making it easier to add columns, autofill tools, process data, offer summaries. There's a lot of stuff that they're doing in here really to just expand on what you can do, make this collaboration even faster, give people more power. And what we saw with Glide last week is un- empowering businesses to have better outcomes and do more with less. And so we're seeing that a lot here. Yeah, I think, you know, we previously discussed that Coda did this, I think like last month, 
And I yep. think now Notion is following up. Essentially, it's just a way to like ask your docs questions. What is the content yeah. of this docs? Or can you help me write new stuff here? A better way to inter interact with your docs, which is a home run. You know, I think this is a well needed use case of AI. And I think this is a no brainer, really. I'm excited to see kind of where they could take it next, because I think this was like the low hanging fruit. Um, and they're kind of just following suit with Coda. But I, it's a good step for Notion. It's a great productivity tool. It's used by a lot, a lot of people. And so this might be the first step to AI for those people that are using it. And I think that could be a good thing too. But generally, I think, you know, Notion is doing a good work here. Love to see them adding more tools like this into the editor and give it a try, I suppose. Yeah. Fair. All right, let's move on to the open AI stuff. And so we have a lot of information. We are not breaking any news here. We're going to try and just summarize a little bit and just offer our recap. But we're not going to get into this whole thing because it's it's honestly crazy. It's it, like I I have been hooked to this, and it's the first time I've actually been hooked to like tech news. I think in my life, and I think that's because like I see the power of ChatGPT and all that it can do, and then all of a sudden, what was it Thursday night saying that you know Sam received a message from one of his board members, and then what was it Friday he was dismissed yeah. and he was fired from. OpenAI and news got out and we're like, how can like three people on a board just get rid of this most famous and powerful CEO right now, right? <laughs> like, how can this happen, right? And everything that we, everything that came out was just like people just vouching for Sam, but we didn't know any of the truth. You know, OpenAI went to then add their CTO, Mira, as like their interim CEO. Um, you know, Microsoft, who is a major investor in OpenAI, they own up to like 49%, actually found out about Sam's firing like minutes before the public announcement. So you're like, what the heck there? And then Greg, yeah. one of the co-founders of OpenAI, was being removed from the board. And so he ended up just resigning in support of Sam and, and everything just exploded. And Sam just expressed gratitude on Twitter about it and suggest stuff for his future plan. And then all of a sudden this OpenAI letter appears of like the open AI staff showing symbolic support for Sam and it's they end up getting everyone. like the, just, all of the 700 almost all of them all almost all of the 700 employees do yeah. it and coming from some of the employees now we're actually hearing that some of those employees felt pressured because some of the original employees were like messaging them like to do this because they had so many shares in the company and so much to lose here and there was oh, kind of like sure. a pressure cooker pressuring these newer people to sign on board there because they still believe that Sam was the best for this company that was almost seemingly disappearing overnight, right? And so everyone is just like, okay, well, if you don't bring Sam back, we're all going to walk. And then Sunday night, Sata, the, the CEO of Microsoft, announced that Sam and Greg and anyone else that wanted was going to join Microsoft and form a new division there, which was like, okay, well, I guess everyone is going to leave open AI and Microsoft is just going to buy open AI and put yeah. Sam back. <laughs> and we're like, okay, what's going on there? And then what was it? Monday morning. Was it Monday morning? Or this morning, Tuesday morning. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. It may or, have been yesterday or this slash this morning officially. Yeah. So, so they quickly, uh, I think on Sunday night, Monday and Tuesday, they got a, an, another CEO, Emmett Shear, who was a previous co-founder of Twitch. He joined the yeah. company for like two days. He was supposedly- I wonder like, if he got any investing shares for that. He, or like a you know, like 
supposedly when he called like an all hands, people responded with like emojis to the all hands with like the FU symbols of like, like wow. people were like totally not about it. Right. This yeah. was, this has been a crazy. And so eventually I think it was Tuesday, Tuesday going on Wednesday morning, the news announced that Sam rejoined open AI and then they were redoing the board and all the structure for that. And so this five day saga of Sam getting fired, nearly the whole company leaving because three people essentially on their board decided so. And then those three people have then, I think, been removed and now Sam is back and they are getting back to work. And so the real thing of this is like, what is this all about, right? Like there's speculation that, you know, Sam and Greg over the years, they haven't been some of the kindest employers. That's speculation, there's rumors. There's also speculation that Sam has been doing like a side hustle of trying to raise money for like a hardware company, knowing that he's going to need a lot of hardware in like an AGI world. There's also speculation of they had an AGI breakthrough and that internally there was a power struggle of like, and what are we going to do with this? And like that all unfolded, folded before they could do anything with it as like a power struggle. So there's a lot that we still don't know about this, but I think when an $80 billion company that has the latest AI technology that is really changing everything goes crazy like this, it's worrisome. Yeah. You wonder just how, you know, lots of lives are hinging on the success or failure of this. Like think about all of the startups that are built as open AI wrappers, right? Like, yeah, you know, not only that, that Microsoft just... lost like $50 billion of market cap over the weekend when Sam like left and then joined and then they raised and like, it's really yeah. affecting them. And then the 700 employees, all of them who, you know, on as of Saturday had lost half their net worth. <laughs> right. Exactly. And then like the CEO of Salesforce is trying to poach all these open AI employees that took, you know, and so like they're losing a lot of people. And so it's like, they just kind of like kidney gutted, like punch themselves from internally. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. Some articles are kind of like saying that we should have seen this coming on both, like the structure of open AI as a nonprofit and a for-profit and Sam's role and shares. Like it's so unconventional, at least to think like this being done. It also didn't seem like the board that was there was very experienced in being a board. Right. That's my thought, at least. But it's hard because there's still we're still learning more information about it. Still stuff's coming out, but it seemed like a very rookie move, right? Not even the notified Microsoft, your biggest shareholder of like, hey, we need your advice. We're going to do this. You know, what's the plan? How do we do this? Right. Like, and, and like some of the people involved, I mean, like they, it, it's come out that, or who knows what's like actually the real truth versus what we've heard. You know, they say Ilya helped to orchestrate this, but like Ilya was the, the officiate Greg's wedding in the open AI offices. Like, how do you turn your back on someone like that? And really just say, yeah, screw it. I want, I'm nervous about this. I don't trust you anymore. Right. How do you go back? Like now that he's back as CEO, how does Ilya continue? I don't know. This is weird. I I think it's worrisome. I mean, like, obviously this is whatever, but 
it, it makes you think like if humans are should be responsible for something like this, like that if it might not be better overseen by AI, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. We get so emotional with this stuff. And it, like, obviously, that's a big statement. It's half of a joke. But it's this is a very big and powerful company that has the potential to literally change lives and change yeah. generations that had three people silently pulling strings behind it that just created a lot of corruption. Yeah, I, although I wonder, like, I guess they weren't pulling the strings at least as much as they wanted to, which is why they had to fire Sam. Because if they could actually pull the strings, yeah, they whatever they were upset about, they could have changed, but they right. couldn't change because they had no control. Yeah, yeah, and you know what? It, what else is like? We the public by showing the amount of support that we did for Sam kind of made him invincible going forward mm -hmm. right like now he now has unlimited power because of all no of wrong. This. he could yeah. do no wrong and now he's in a position with potential agi and all this ai resources behind him to really do some shit right and so i hope we didn't all bite ourselves in the butt there or whatever like everything shows that this is a great person uh and we're lucky to have him in our you know society for pushing this innovation but I yeah. think this story, there's still a lot left to be told. And it's a little scary how much, you know, just a handful of people can do with power like this. Yeah. But what, what's exciting is it does really kind of show that, you know, AI innovations are happening with people mm -hmm. and people are involved. And that, you know, as long as people are involved, you'll continue to get better results. It's not just like this automated system of, computers doing everything there are people behind things yeah uh, i think that's pretty great it has been wild to me how pervasive the news has been right like every headline every article every newspaper has something about this even if they're not normally covering ai or tech or news they're still covering this really intensely it's like the best drama high stakes global tech people regulation safety it's just it's just so entertaining i i completely agree here we are with marius he is a managing director at techstar seattle but he didn't always be that he was also an entrepreneur coming up in the film industry with his last startup marius why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe a little bit about ShareGrid and how you might have gotten to where you are right now. Yeah, sure. So been, I started off as a filmmaker. I went to film school, uh, mostly focused on uh, editing side, visual effects, 3D animation. And later on throughout college, I had a startup. After college, I had a startup. I kept gravitating towards tech and designing iPhone apps was, was the thing I really enjoyed doing. And that led me to get a job at Groupon as one of the first designers on the mobile team. So I had the opportunity to design the first ever Groupon app. And that was a wild wow. ride. We learned a lot doing that. And later on, three spent about three years at Groupon, met my co-founder, which would end up being my co-founder for ShareGrid. ShareGrid was a startup that we started in about 2015. It was a marketplace for filmmakers and photographers to rent out their equipment to other filmmakers and photographers. And we started out 2015, ran it until 2021 when we sold it to a large company called Backstage. They've been around since the 60s. 
in the film industry. So ShareGrid's still going. It's one of the largest marketplaces for equipment, over a billion dollars worth of equipment on the platform. And the whole team is still there. I'm the only one that, that has left and got an angel investing right after and had the opportunity to join Techstar Seattle as a managing director and seemed like a, a great idea at the time. So, And I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, I got to say, ShareGrid, there was a lot that went into that. Like you had a fifty dollars to $60,000 camera and then you just wanted to like rent that out to someone else for the day for like $500, right? All the insurance, the liability, like all that stuff of like a stranger, almost like Airbnb, right? A stranger <laughs> saying, here, here is a $60,000 lens, take it and do not drop it. And if you do, I'm going to call Marius and then talk about it. There was a lot that you had to figure out in that startup. You guys, you know, I came from the film industry too. You guys became the company, the share, the gear sharing company, very similar to the Airbnb of the industry. And you did a lot of things really well there. Talk about scaling. Like, how did you like get that chicken and egg problem solved? Like so many of us struggle with that chicken and egg problem when building Lots marketplaces. Like, mm -hmm. how did you guys go about that? So many things come to mind. And a lot of it was manual, as you imagine. So a few things I'll mention. When we were starting off, First off, we just read the Lean Startup, the book, and it really inspired us to not build anything right away, right? So we built a landing page just to prove out the idea. And on that landing page, we kind of just put our vision on the page. Hey, this is going to be a marketplace. You'll make hundreds, thousands of dollars every month. Everything will be fully insured. Sign up. Right? And none of that was figured out. None of it was built. We wanted to see if people would gravitate towards the idea before we dedicated a lot of time. We were still working our day jobs, and this was nights and weekends that we built this landing page. And we threw a few hundred dollars at Facebook when Facebook advertising was very cheap. <laughs> that actually um, resulted in some views. Yeah. So within a few weeks, we had over 2,000 signups for this wait list. And wow. we were super excited. But what was more exciting was people were emailing us literally like spreadsheets full of equipment saying, here's my equipment. When can I get started? Wow. So we saw the eagerness and the idea right away. And that got us really excited to keep building. And we knew that it wasn't actually the marketplace that was necessarily the innovation here. Right? Marketplaces have been done many times. So we actually started with a open source code base that we just built on top of. So we just took MIT free license code base and started building from that. We didn't build every feature of the marketplace. What we did end up where we deviated from the lean startup was the lean startup advised move fast, ship often, you know, get out there as quickly as possible. And I think our competitor probably read the same book because they <laughs> shipped before us. That was hard for us to see that people were starting to sign up for their service and we haven't then launched yet. And the reason we didn't launch is because we knew coming from the industry how important it was to how important trust was in this community, because like JJ said, you're renting out a $60,000 camera. You really hope that thing doesn't get dropped and it doesn't get stolen. And if it were to get dropped or stolen, you would be hundred percent covered. So we decided to look for an insurance partner. And once we found an insurance partner, they said, you need to build an entire insurance platform online because we don't have so that's where we spent six, over six months actually hiring engineers to build that platform. And we delayed our launch for over six months because we felt like that was super important. And once we did launch, 
we were able to get press about that. And the main key thing the press spoke about was the insurance piece because they obviously knew your audience and knew that they would care about that. And that press got us a huge amount of signups. So that's one thing. The other way we battled the chicken and egg problem was when you signed up for ShareGrid, it was private community. Again, we understood that trust was such a big thing. So we said, invite only, we're only invite professionals. And once you're in, you get three invite codes. Please only invite people that you trust. Realistically, we were hoping to invite anyone because yeah. if I would invite three people and those people would invite three people, we would have a, a viral loop on our hands. So, you know, it was a little bit of a ploy, but it worked because people were starting to look for these invite codes and they felt like there was a mm. little bit of homo building up. And once they signed up, we would not even let them go into the marketplace because we said, hey, if they show up and the store is empty, who would like to come back to an empty store for us? Like, right. that's not a good experience. So we said, hey, if you would like to be considered to be part of the community, go ahead and submit a list of your equipment. They would uh, submit their equipment. Right. And then we would, like, by hand, list all of their equipment for them. So then we would go out and find photos for every single piece of gear, descriptions, titles. We would price it for them. And then wow. we launched the community. All you had to do was just reset the password. And you're profile was completely filled out your avatar image we took it from your your portfolio we yeah. took your mm. description everything was completely filled out so we tried to reduce friction as much as possible and that's how we got the supply first because we knew we had to have the supply otherwise the demand would never come and the supply was easy because all you had to do is send us a list and then it was off your hands you wouldn't have to think about it until we emailed you again so there was no you weren't losing anything by having your equipment on the platform. You were one market. Yeah, exactly. And we, started, we started with just one city. We started in Los Angeles first. Yeah. And that's the, it feels like the unscalable thing first, right? That's the, you know, Airbnb pushes this because it sounds like Airbnb, right? The early days of Airbnb, they sent the professional photographer to the apartment to make it look professional, like somewhere you'd actually want to live. And so you went through and made sure all of these things are filled out and yeah. full and complete. So everyone's experience just felt like a white glove. When, when you logged up, and we didn't open it up until we had enough equipment on there. So that when you walked into the marketplace, you were like, whoa, first off, I know all of these people. They're in my city. I've worked with this person. I've worked with this yeah. person. This is the real deal. Oh, and they have three of the red cameras and they have four of them. affordable price. And the price. Oh, so the other trick we did there. Yeah. So we, up, we uploaded everybody's gear. And then we said, hey, in order for us to get things going, because the, the price we used was essentially the only reference point we had was rental houses. Rental houses obviously have a markup on all of their prices because they have a huge infrastructure. So we said, in order for us to get going, we're going to apply a 20% discount across the entire community. Uh, we're going to lower all prices by 20%. And pe some people are like, what do you mean? Like, how are you doing this? And we said, no, if you don't like it, you could go in and just change the price. Nobody uh, wanted to change their price for 10, 20 items. Yeah, right. So we knew that like the friction would work against them and they would never yeah, change so their price. <laughs> So for the first three months, we lowered the price to 20%. And then we said, hey, 
any new equipment you list, we're not going to lower the price anymore. But if you want to change all of your listings, you can always increase the price. But nobody did because they no, wanted no, to compete no, no, against no. Yeah. So on my side, I came from the film producing side and one of my cinematographers was like, we're on a budget shoot. And they're like, Hey, I, I really want this lens. Check out this site. They got it for like the cheapest I've seen. And it was ShareGrid. And I went and checked it out as like a producer. And I was like, okay, I'm going to submit my insurance here. They built the insurance portal, just like you to interact with any kind of other vendor. So as like a producer, I was like, all right, here's my certificate of insurance. Here's my credit card. I just booked it. And here's your lens. Here you go. And then it was just like, okay, this is convenient and easy. And like, everything seems to be there. And then it became the thing and really proud of what he grew to because they were very, very big beyond that. But like, this is a weird industry. Like this film industry, it's very old in a lot of ways. They were re refusing to adapt to technology in many ways, right? You had one way of doing it. And it's like, this is my camera guide. This is my lighting house. This is my whatever. And so creating new norms like this, like ShareGrid was doing, was really hard to do. And I think you guys did a great job with it, obviously. Yeah, the, that was tough to battle against as these existing behaviors that were so tough to change. And honestly, we didn't try to. Like, we didn't even try to change people's minds because we knew there was a segment of the, of the population that was willing to adapt. The younger filmmakers that were just entering the space, you know, they were much more tech savvy. They're willing to try new things, but the people that have been in the industry for a while, it took us years to gain their trust and, and be able to get them on the platform. Actually, funny enough, COVID was huge for us because rental houses, first of all, hated us. These are the <laughs> brick and mortar warehouses yeah, for the disruptor. Yeah. We were the disruptor in many ways. And the most disrupting feature of our entire marketplace was the fact that we showed prices. Oh. Because before that, when you work with a, a rental house, you would have to call and ask them, hey, how much for an Alexa Mini? And they would ask you, what are you working on? Yeah, what's your budget? What do you got? And everything was a negotiation, right? Price yeah. would change. Yeah. yeah. And our prices were upfront. You could see. And some people would not even shop for them. They would not even rep from us, but they would just come in and see what the price is, what the market price was. Mm -hmm. So even though their clients would still shop with them, our website would still impact their business. They did not want to work with us until COVID, when the entire industry shut down. We said, what do we do? 98% of our rentals went away. So we said, the only thing we have in our control is let's increase our supply. Everybody's sitting on their hands right now. So we contacted every rental house and they said, yeah, let's give it a try. I mean, we're not doing anything. So they started loading up our website with the most equipment we could ever see. And every time a new piece of equipment landed on our website, the network effect of our marketplace increased. And what I mean by that is every time you add another Alexa Mini, what happens is you have a lot more selection. So the value for the renter goes up because now I don't have to drive an hour to get on Alexa. There's one right in my neighborhood. The value of shared goes up. And the second thing is every time you got a piece of equipment, you create competition. So now if there's 10 Alexa minis, you want to lower your price just a little bit to be able to stand out, which creates a lot more value again on the demand side. So COVID was in a way a blessing in disguise because we were able to load up our inventory. So when, Production came back. 
we had the most selection and the best pricing yet again. Wow. It's interesting to hear, I guess, the supply demand decision or which side to go after. I guess you have to pick one. There's always in a supply and demand world, there's always one that's more patient, mm -hmm. right? There's mm -hmm. a, usually it's the supply side because this is extra for them. And the demand side is always the one that's like impatient. And so a lot of marketplaces will launch really early. And we see lots of marketplaces in the no-code world. Yeah. Really early going like it's an empty marketplace. We'll launch it. Someone will like it, right? They won't go and try to build up that demand or build up the supply so that when the demand arrives, it's a good experience for them. Yeah. That's yeah. Really it comes really challenging, like you mentioned when the supply is not patient or when the supply, there's a lot ask of the supply. There's a lot of energy that the supply side needs to involve uh, input. One example might be a course website or a marketplace of teachers, right? Like teachable or masterclass, because now you're asking somebody, Hey, would you dedicate hours to build a course? And they're going to ask, okay, what am I getting a return? Do you have the demand? Show me the numbers before I put in all of this energy. So in that case, you might want to flip it. You might want to advertise the supply before the course has even been built. Mm -hmm. Get the demand, get a wait list going. So then you go to the supply side and say, look, there's thousands of people waiting to purchase your course. It's worth putting in all that energy. But if your yeah. supply side is really patient, requires no energy on their side, then you could start with the supply side. Yeah, we saw, so I came from the ad tech world and we saw that in outdoor billboards in order to get a billboard network onto a, a marketplace, they had to spend a ton of time trying mm. to standardize their metrics, trying to input the data, trying to get everything in there, their systems hooked up, the tech talking together. And the biggest question was always, well, how much demand am I going to get for all of this effort? And yeah. so they were really impatient. They would, you know, expect millions of dollars to just magically appear. And yeah. so a lot of the time, what we ended up seeing, there are a couple early mo movers in the space that did well, but a lot of the others actually started by being their own supply, mm -hmm. right? They have their own network of properties, you know, like a course maker. I already have a hundred courses that I'm selling that I produce myself. I have yeah. all of these people coming to me anyway. Let me allow other people to co-sell at the same yeah. time. Yeah. So that marketplace, the supply driven or the supply of patient usually starts with if you owned a billion dollars worth of rental equipment and you were trying to sell it that way, then yeah. you add on more after. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that's not fortunately. So, but I don't, think, I don't think that's what it was. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, really. So you went on to run that company for what, eight years. You were CEO, co-founder or something like that. Yep. I, I started off, I did not start off as CEO. My co-founder, Arash, was CEO in the early days when okay. we went out to fundraise. He previously had a startup and he sold it to Groupon. So we felt like he was much more experienced and that would play really well with investors and within maybe a year and a half, two years, we switched roles and I became CEO and he moved to the product side, became CEO. Cool. Cool. And then you ended up selling that company to a larger company. And now you write your role at, at Techstars as a managing director in Seattle. 
Can you tell us a little bit about what that is, what that role is and what, what program you offer? Yeah. So Techstars as a whole, so there's Techstars Central and Techstars as a organization is the largest seed investor in the world. So we do over 700 investments a year. And then the way we're split up, unlike other, so we're an investment accelerator and unlike other accelerators, probably the most popular one would be Y Combinator. Y Combinator is based in one city, right? We're actually based in 57 different areas around the globe. So we have offices in New York and Boulder and Seattle and Los Angeles and Austin and Tokyo and Berlin, right? All over the place. And I particularly run the Seattle office. So Techstar Seattle has actually been around for, for more than a decade. It's actually the third oldest program in uh, within all the, the 57 different programs. The Techstar started in Boulder, then it moved to New York, then Seattle. And because we've been around for a long time, we've had amongst the highest returns of all the programs. And a lot of it has to do because we've been able to see the companies grow and we've had they've had time to mature, right? So we have three unicorns that have come out of the Seattle program. So Remitly, which is a publicly traded mm. company, Outreach, uh, and Zipline. So that was, and then hopefully many more that are like <laughs> really, really well. So that's one thing that attracted me to the program is that the Seattle program particularly has had a lot of success. But the way the program works is that we'll invest up to $120,000 and we'll invest in about 24 companies a year. Once we make that investment, then we have the company go through a three-month extensive, let's call it a boot camp, right? So they come to our offices, we give them office space, and then for three months, they essentially do the work that you would typically do within two years, but you do it within three months. So we help you from anywhere to, uh, we partner uh, you with mentors. We bring in a lot of different mentors from different areas. Most of them have been founders themselves. Some of them are industry experts in marketing or SEO or sales. Yep. And we'll, we'll bring in mentors. We'll match you up with mentors and then we'll help you figure out who your customer is, how to actually gain traction. And then ultimately we'll help you with your fundraise. So we'll introduce you to hundreds of investors, help you develop your pitch deck, your data room, everything you need to be investor ready. And then of course we have demo day at the end of the three months. And that's for a seed stage company, right? Exactly. So we do, we invest at the pre-seed and seed stage out of the group that we're going, that's going through the program as, as we speak out of the 24 companies, about 40% of them have raised friends and angel round, but some of them haven't raised at all. And it's just an idea. And yeah, well, it's that early stage that we're interested in and we'll only invest in this mostly all software companies. We won't invest in life science, life science or hardware. Okay. And so what is the difference between a pre-seed and a seed for our audience? Yeah. So pre-seed is essentially, this just comes before seed. Pre-seed, typically we see rounds anywhere from 500,000 to a million. And then seed now is anywhere from a million to two or 2.5 million. And it's always changing. And it's, you know, when I was raising a seed round was, anywhere from 500,000 to a million yeah. now it keeps going up. Series A used to be like two, $3 million. So it, it keeps adjusting all the time, but there's a lot of good data on Carta.com. If you, if you go there, there's a bunch of reports and you'll be able to understand that. But pre-seed, 
we typically, it's okay to just have an idea and some validation of the customer. At the seed level, you're, we're probably going to want to see some customers and see some traction, some growth. And then series A, you, you, you want to see revenues. <laughs> yeah. Can you, I, this is a very specific question, but only because we talked about the ranges on the seed side. Lots of people ha have this idea that raise as much money as you can whenever you can, right? Go get the 5 million if you can go get 5 million. If you were a founder listening in, what would you, how would you decide how much money you need? Yeah. So the way you decide how much money you need is you need to be able to reach your next milestone. So if you're, re you know, if, you, if, you, if you're raising pre-seed, you want to make sure that you have enough time to reach whatever milestone you have in mind to reach your seed. And th there's different milestones for different types of companies, right? If you're a hardcore deep tech, it might be developing the actual technology that you need might be the next step. If you are a social network, it might be that you need a couple hundred thousand users or some kind of retention number that you need to hit, right? So you don't necessarily, a lot of advice I see is you need to raise for 18 months. Yes, that's a good start, but you need to raise for your next milestone because the worst thing you want to do is you raise for 18 months, but you don't reach your milestone that you need to be able to raise your Series A, let's say. So that's right. I'll give you an example. In, in most cases, for a Series A, you're going to need to do 500000 to a million dollars or above in recurring revenue a year. So let's say that you only reach 300000 well, now you're going to be really stuck because you can't raise your series A. So you might have to raise a seed plus, which is really looked down upon. You essentially missed your target and, or you might have to raise a bridge. Never use the word bridge. Yeah. <laughs> seed A or seed B, you know, yeah. whatever. Everyone knows whenever any of those things, you're essentially communicating, yeah, right. you know, like I did yeah. not reach the goal. Right. So I'm not struggling right now. Help me. Yeah. Mm. So I would aim for reaching, you know, next milestone. So understand and then add a buffer. That's how much you should raise. Now for the companies that are getting money thrown at them and it's like, oh, instead of 3 million, I could raise 5 million. Obviously I should raise more, right? More buffer. The problem is, let's say you raise five on 20. So 5 million on a $20 million valuation. Your next round, you at least need to double that. So you need to raise, you know, 10 million on a $40 million valuation. So now work backwards and understand what milestones you have to hit to actually reach that. Yeah, and if you don't, that's a bad signal for the market, for investors. Your current investors aren't going to be happy, right? So it sounds awesome to raise more money, but then the milestones you have to hit are much, much tougher. And you've given away more of the company. If the company is worth 20 million and you can raise two and hit your target, you've given away 10% yeah. instead of 20. They say the, one of the reasons Mark Zuckerberg did so well with Facebook was because he was able to skip a few rounds of funding because he wasn't diluted so much. Exactly. Right? And just always raised and people were ready to give him so much money. They yeah. just didn't need it. And so they didn't take the rule of thumb is that for every round you're probably going to give away 15 to 20% of your company. So the more rounds you, 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 you take, you only get five, five rounds. Yeah. yeah.
What about, so our audience, they're indie builders, you know, let's say someone has a SaaS application built on no code and it's making $10,000 a month MRR. Should this person seek investment or not? What do you, what would you say? When, yeah. When is VC appropriate? When is bootstrapping the way? Yeah. So that depends again on first, it depends on what you want to do with your life. So you, you need to like look within and talk to your family and understand what you want to do because once you get on the seed uh, once you get on the investment track you know if you only take you know i'll, I'll use an example so for share grid so share grid we only took a seed round and later decided we're not going to take even though we had the metrics to raise a series a we blew through those metrics had the opportunity to raise a seed series a we decided not to because we felt like the market didn't necessarily support it so and we couldn't prove out that there was, we had a few attempts to try to expand the market and they didn't work out. Our business was solid. It was profitable from essentially year one. But we knew that if we took that money, we would take on a big risk that maybe that money could help us figure out to, how to get to, you know, $100 million, $200 million in revenue. But if it didn't, we just gave away a bunch of our company. So we decided to iterate using our own money and see if we could scale in that direction. And at some point we said, no, we're just going to keep this and we're not going to take any more rounds. So you could take money up front. And as long as your investors are understanding and ours were, you could get off the VC train. But most, and most times you can't. And that's why I say, look within, is this what you want to do? Because having a profitable business could be an amazing lifestyle business. Owning, you know, 90% of a business is much better than owning eight or 9% of a business. Mm-hmm. So start there. But let's say that, hey, no, because building a small company or a relatively medium-sized company takes the same energy as building a multi-billion dollar company. It's the same amount of work, it's the same amount of hours, same amount of pain. There's no, there's no difference, right? Like Jeff Bezos, just because he had a trillion dollar company, wasn't working much harder than the person running a restaurant. If anything, probably was working lower probably less, at right? some point. Yeah. So, okay, let's say you want to go for the, for, for, you want to shoot for the moon. Then I would say, do a market analysis bottoms up. One of the mistakes I made when starting ShareGrid is I would look at industry reports. How big is the film industry? How big is the equipment rental industry? And I would like find these huge reports of, Six billion, seven yeah, billion, every billion, billion, billions. Every and market report has billions. You're like, look, it's huge, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand I what that. <laughs> yeah. So what I would recommend, if I could go back, what I would do with ShareGrid, I would say, okay, how many rental houses in each city? Right. Go to Google Maps and just start start counting rental houses. Okay, but we don't just do rental houses; we also help individuals. Okay, go to a directory, start counting cinematographers because we knew that was our audience. Okay, we have tens of thousands of cinematographers. How much would you charge? And just multiply based on your fee, right? And you could do a few different variations. And if your number ends up being in the 50 to $100 million revenue at some point, right? it's really hard to nail this. But you have to get in that range. Then I would say, okay, you have a case to be made that this could be venture scale and you might want to consider actually going out and fundraising. Yeah. And it's interesting. Many, I think people 
who are making this decision to bootstrap or fundraise will try to make the numbers work in whatever decision they've decided. Yeah. Some people will say, I want to raise VC. I want to raise venture capital. Let me go find evidence to support that case and not actually realistically check this, you know, gut check this. Does this actually make sense? No, there's no chance I'm going to sell a billion dollars of Q-tip alternatives next week. Right? Like that's just, uh, yes, there are 2 billion ears that might need that. Yes. Yeah. Like I can, I can make the data say whatever I want. Yeah. And so it's really hard at this early stage to be honest with yeah. yourself. Yeah. And most of the time I think, and, and you may, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. The investor on the other side is not lying to themselves. Right, they'll see right through what you've done in this math and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you yeah. this this line that you've taken doesn't make sense. Yeah. No, our investors are the most cynical people in some cases, right? Like ninety-eight yeah. percent of the time our goal is to say no. Like we're coming in to say yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like we can't spend we're spending other people's money and like we want to make sure that we, we're choosing the companies that have a huge market and have huge potential. So we're, we will say no. In some, some cases, we're going to be wrong. A lot of cases, we're going to be wrong. So it doesn't mean that, like, our opinion, if we say this market's small, a lot of people told Uber that the taxi market was too yeah. small. And they figured out that actually it wasn't because they were creating a new market or bringing on new drivers. So I wouldn't listen to investors all the time. <laughs> uh, but if a lot of them are telling you the same thing, you're talking yeah. to 30, 40 investors and everybody seems to have the same reaction. Maybe there's something there and you need to stop and like, you know, compose yourself and really add on. Yeah. yeah. One yeah. of the things that I learned when I was raising money from angels is like, it's a numbers game. You can't just like meet with one person and say, I think I'm going to get it. Like it's, it's a number. You got to meet with a lot of people and it's not just, and like, if you do find that one person, you need to make sure that you're okay having them bringing them into your company too, because you're going to be working together there. So you also need to be as selective as they're being selected with you. And so it's just, you need to get out there and be at a lot of pitches, meet a lot of people. And it takes so much time as yep. you as a founder doing this, that's like six months of you just fundraising, going out there and you're not even really working on your company that much because you got to dedicate this much time to it, right? And I, I just feel like the more money you're making, the 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 more success you're going to have raising funds and that's because investors can already see how you're making money and okay if i give you some money you can just scale this now right but if you're not making money it's going to be so hard for you to raise funds because no one can actually see your path to revenue and so i my advice to young entrepreneurs is just find a way to make revenue go out there and make as much money as you can yourself because then you will have the option to say do i want to just do this myself do i want to raise money I, you know, I, I now have the luxury to, you know, have a runway rather than I have no money. I have no revenue. VC is my only option. And this company is going to die without it. And that's literally, you can't build a company like that. I totally agree. I was going to say that investors actually have, you know, just to be on the investor side, we have a very tough job at the pre-seed yeah. level. We're making essentially the most irrational investments ever. Most investors have numbers to go off of. They have years, most bankers have years of, you know, data to, to analyze. 
at the at this stage where it's just the founder with an idea and you're trying to essentially bet millions of dollars on that founder and their idea, it's really tough to make a decision. So if you could bring more supporting evidence that, hey, this is working, I have users, they're sticking around, they're paying me money for this, that makes our decision a lot easier. Yeah, 100%. $1 is more than one times better than $0. (laughs) I'd like, you're like, no, it's basically zero. Yes, but it's not. It's very different. I I think this audience needs to know. If you're an investor and you look at a company and the company P&L is great, but they're built on no code. Is that a negative sign for you? Are you running out of the room? Are you, do you still have confidence? Where are you at? Or where do you think the investors at large are at with this conversation? It depends. <laughs> so I've invested in a company that's built on no code this year, but I think it depends. And it comes down to... Platform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It comes down to the... Okay. Yeah. Personally, rhyme with... <laughs> so as much as I love no, uh, um, and I love Bubble, uh, with huge bubble over, uh, I, I the platform doesn't really matter. But I'll tell you, so I, I've been a designer all my life, and like I love no code because it gave me I feel like superpowers, like the ideas in my head, not just in Figma now. Like I could actually build them. It's so amazing. The issue when it comes to investment is that in my, in my opinion, there's only two ways to win a, a business at startups. You have to be able to differentiate yourself. And I think there's only two ways to differentiate yourself. It's either tech or distribution. So either you're building something completely new that does not exist, right? Which means you're doing something really, really hard by building a new technology, right? We have a company in our current cohort. They're building technology to be able to deploy software from, from a computer to robots like 100 times faster. That's, that's a new like workflow. That's a new way to do this, this tech that just doesn't exist, right? So there's just not that much competition out there. So they're going to be able to get customers because they're building a, a whole new way of doing this. Now... There's the distribution side. You could, as long as you could figure out distribution, you could use whatever, whatever platform you want. So the other company that we invested in that is a no-code platform, we bet on the founder because she's building a social community for creators. She is a creator herself with like over 40,000 followers. She worked for TikTok. So she understands like the algorithm. She understands the whole world. She has investment from her bosses, her previous bosses. So she has that signal. So she, everything is built on a no-code platform. But in that case, I'm betting that she will figure out distribution better than everybody else. Because whenever you're building a no-code, you're essentially building within a space that anyone could build that. So I'll give you another example. When, you know, early in the early days of the internet, building a website Having payment on a website was really, really tough. You had to deal with hosting. You had to build your own payment provider. Now, as that friction came down, as it became easier to build websites, more people entered the market. So you just have a lot more competition. You have a lot more to compete against. And that's where distribution becomes key. 
So I hate that because just now I have the power to build anything I want. And it's like, oh, that's actually not the skill that you need now. You need the, the ability to like actually get out there and sell and distribute because the market's so busy now for most ideas that that's how you differentiate yourself. The website itself is not a differentiator anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I think those are really good de like decision, decision tree points of how am I really changing this product and market? Is it because of the technical advancement? I'm doing something that can't be done easily. Uh, or is it something uh, that just needs better, more people to know about it faster? In, in the ads on top world, I come from this ad tech world we recently sold our company. Uh, we were low code actually. So we were built code in the innovation side of things, right? Like this programmatic ad server that did things in real time using this, like all of these data and all this stuff, the, the delivery, all of that was built in code. That was the innovation, but the boring stuff, lots of the UI that were just forms and buttons and statuses. That was actually built in bubble. We built this low code environment so that all of the magic happened in code in this really controlled, you know, self built way, but the boring stuff we said, okay, great. Let's not waste time, you know, writing a react app when we yeah. can just build it in bubble quickly. And it, it worked really well. And you know, it's an interesting part of that, that question as well. I think there's a lot of opportunity to use no code to still innovate and differentiate in industries where traditionally they've been left behind. I'll give you an example. In our current cohort, we have a company who, you know, there's been a lot of uh, talk about thin wrappers on top of AI. Right? And it's like, you don't want to do that because anyone's able to knock you off and, and do a competitive product. But in some industries, there's just not that much competition. So this company is focusing on local government offices and local government offices have just traditionally been bad at adopting technology, but he's a mayor of okay. one of these local governments just there. He has the in, he has the distribution. So even though his technology is not super impressive, he's using AI to, he's doing a lot of document ingestion and document discovery for these local governments. Very simple stuff if you were to like compare it to anything else on the market from a technical standpoint. But that industry has just traditionally been left behind and it's very hard to enter. So similar yeah. to maybe the billboard uh, world, there's probably hasn't been a lot of innovation on the tech side. Right. You come in and, and just build some really simple workflows, great user interfaces that just elevate that experience to the next level and you can win pretty, pretty, yeah. pretty nice. Well, let me yeah. ask you another question. You have your founder, you have a app that you built on no code and it's making 1 million ARR, ARR, right? And you want to raise and you're in the room and investors ask what technology is it built on? What do you say to them? What do I say? So they're making a million dollars in ARR and they want to raise. Yeah. Probably like the pre-seed, right? Sure. I mean, yeah, you're a lot of money for a pretty seed. It depends. So the questions, the more information I would need is how long did it take you to make that million dollars in ARR? Yeah. Have you been working at this for seven years? Mm -hmm. What we really look for is momentum, mm -hmm. uh, right? So 
I don't really care about the numbers at this point. Like you mentioned, a dollar is better than nothing. But what I'm really looking for is how fast are you moving, right? So three months ago, you started a company, you already have three customers. That shows me you're moving super, super fast, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe those customers aren't even paying you yet. They're pilots. That's okay. Like you've gone out there, you've built something, you've built a demo, you went out there and found customers, you convinced them to sign on. That's great. I'm looking for momentum and I'm not really looking for numbers. The other thing I'm going to be looking for is the market. So is this big market? And every investor says that. I really don't care actually about a big market because what I care about is a uh, fast growing market. So I need momentum within the market as well. And what I mean by that, there's a Jeff Bezos famously in the early 90s saw that the internet was growing at 2,300% year over year and was like, I just need to build something in that market. And he was completely right because most companies at the time that built e-commerce stores on the internet did pretty well. You'd have to be, you don't have to be a genius to build something where the market is growing so fast, right? Famous saying of like, all tides lift all boats or something like that. And it's completely- A rising tide lifts all boats. Exactly, exactly. So I'm looking for, is this market growing? It's similar to our industry, JJ, for, for film, huge industry, right? Been around for over a hundred years. It's not necessarily growing super fast. Right. Well, you're going to be going against the grain in that industry, trying to grow anything in that industry. Yeah. But you should be looking for, is the industry growing year over year? Because even if the founder is not perfect, that will smooth out some of those. All right. So let's say ahead. the answer is yes. They're in a growing market. They have a million ARR and you ask them what technology they built on. Uh, or they ask your investors, ask you as the founder, what technology you built on. Do you say you built on no code? Do you say that you built on, you know, a JavaScript stack, essentially whatever bubbles built on? What, how do you respond to that? I mean, look, I, I re- personally, I don't care. I think different investors will have different uh, mindsets on this. To me, what would, what would matter is again, do you have everything else, yeah. everything else? And then is this scalable, right? So like, yeah. I would want to see like, can you show me some examples of other apps that are at this scale or actually much bigger scale, a couple of years down the road where you will be and will this platform support it? So is there any risk? I'm looking for risk. I'm looking to identify risk. So is there any risk that, you know, bubble goes away. Is there any risk that whatever platform is, is going to be around for a while? And then the, the problem is pricing, right? Like, are they going to change their pricing? And then your margin are going to like come down. So there, you know, there is some risk that I would have to identify. Can you code and leave? And that's what we did at ShareGrid is that like we started with, actually we started with ShareTrack code, which they used to make their code open source and you can just take it and fork off and do your own thing. That's great because we control our destiny. But as you see, like it's hard to build your technology on somebody else's platform and play by their rules. A lot of companies have learned this the hard way. Look at uh, Spotify building on top of Apple, right? Like Apple could just charge whatever they want. They could change the rules. They could come out with a competing service. A lot of will learn that lesson with open AI building on top of them. So that's the big risk that I would have to feel comfortable with is that like, what happens 
if the platform goes away or changes their their settings or they have an outage, you know, and, and this is the risk with even no code platforms, right? Like there's serverless, serverless different uh, platforms now, and there's all these tools. So you kind of have to identify that a little bit, but that comes more towards due diligence in my, my case. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think we, you know, in my world, I started, our company was first fully built with code. Right. Everything engineer driven, even the front end was built with, we'd have outages as well. You know, the, someone pushed something like crash production and things happen. And then we switched to bubble. And then this was like five years ago when we switched, they had lots of outages. But the one thing that was different was like, at least when we were in control of the code, we knew when we pushed something and what to do to fix it. When bubble went down, who do I call? Like, there's no one, there's no one to scold. Well, not that I'm yep. yelling at everyone, yep. but you know, like you can't, there's no triage for me to go, Hey, let's not do that again. Right. We yep. can't improve our processes. We're beholden to them, which is risky. Yeah. Yeah. Ideally, you, we be in a world where, look, I think over the next several years, no code will take over and more and more because with the help of AI, things you imagine should be able to be automatically coded, right? But hopefully you're still in control of the code and you still have access to it. So if you do grow to a large size, again, the, the challenge with building on top of somebody else's platform is that when the business is really large, an outage is costing you a lot of money and you just don't want that to be out of your control. You want to be in control of the mistakes. You want to own the mistakes and fix them, like you said. So it's just hard when you're relying on somebody else to fix the outage because it's not their problem, right? Like, I mean, I'm sure they're losing money too, but like not as much as probably you're losing if, if you're a transaction-based business or something like that. Yeah, and we would lose we would lose demos because the outage would happen right at the beginning of a demo. And then all of a sudden something would go wrong. And so I'd always have like screenshots and videos ready just in case I could click properly. I was always prepared. We were fortunate that, you know, because the main processes of our business were running in the background, regardless of the code system, and it was you know, highly redundant and it was always on and it was, you know, yeah. you know, 99, five, nine, you know, uptime, we could protect ourselves, even if the UI was inaccessible. You, yeah, sure, you could change the ad, but something was yeah. running. And we could always change it as well separately. Like we had our own path that if yeah. we needed it, we could. And so, yeah, it, it was nice. But the flip side is the speed, right? The being able to push features on a moment's notice or on a demo, right? I've done this before where I'm demoing a product for a client. They're working on something. I notice something's wrong and I just, you know, turn to the side and fix it. Hey, can you refresh your page? And magically it works. That is like, you know, especially early days. Like, you know, we heard last week, lots of MVPs are being built on notes. In that MVP stage, the speed yeah. is so important and so helpful. It's like its own feature. And we say the the most the uh, the most competitive advantage a startup has is speed okay. against like any big, large incumbent is speed. So I think in the early days, no code makes a lot of sense. But then as you grow bigger and bigger, 
then the risks of that we mentioned that we, we just covered potentially outweigh the benefits of going fast, but that's only once you're like a very large company. Yeah. That's why I love, and I'm working on a project now that's low code where on a moment's notice, we hire a front end developer and everything can now be coded, even though the speed in this like really malleable early stages, we can move way faster to get what the product looks like needs to do so much faster than if we were to try code everything. And so then at that moment, when we hit the scale, when we have the revenue and we can hire the developers and we're not worried about like every little penny, yeah. then we can go, Hey, let's go back to full stack and make yeah. a lot of stuff. Yeah. But I think no code just gives you that speed and versatility to get to market quick, see yep. what works, adjust, make those adjustments find that product market fit. And then it's like, okay, let's really hammer in now. And then what makes sense for growth and scale now? I think a lot of no-code platforms keep on getting more powerful and more powerful. So I think depending on the use case, it depends on, do you need to go somewhere else or not? I think with each day, we can stay on these platforms longer and longer depending on your use case. So I, I don't know where it's going to go. I think we're going to continue to get more power. We'll continue to get more AI into this, which allows us to access more things. I guess, you know, Marius, as we work to wrap up here, like, where do you see no code and AI going in the next couple of years? Like, generally, I guess. Yeah. No, I think you bring up a great point that as these platforms get more and more advanced, much more mature, right? We could trust them better because we have a track record to look back on of how many times did they go down? You know, I would even question everything we just talked about is that what's the difference between Twilio going down or AWS going down, you're not in full control. I mean, you're using so many different services that you're relying on your website to run. So how is it different than, than no code, right? And again, I think until now it's been because a lot of these platforms have been fairly new. So we just, the trust wasn't there, but as they get more mature, I think we will get to a point where people will stay on these platforms longer and longer and build more and more complex features. And again, what you said, JJ, like with AI, I, I mean, I, I tweeted about this. I was stuck in bubble and I took a screenshot of what I was stuck on in all the different errors I was getting and open AI walked me step-by-step step on how to fix it. That was just, I had this like moment of like, that's, Probably one of the first times when I've seen AI, besides like copywriting and stuff, of like really be by my side and help me do something that I was not going to be able to figure out. And I can't imagine once you actually build that into the no-code platform, where you're just describing what you want and it builds the workflow or builds the database for you. I mean, again, I, I use this uh, I use this saying all the time, which is one of my favorite things. And I repeat it a lot. So I really do think right now we're in the medieval times of the internet. What I mean by that, that I think it's, there's a metric out there that only half a percent of the world's population could actually code. But most of us are on the internet. Most of us are consuming and we live in a digital world. But think about that. Only half a percent could actually change that digital environment and make changes and share ideas. That's the equivalent of saying, hey, there's all these books out there, but only half a percent of us could actually write books. So if you think about it that way, um, 
you know, when people say like, oh, what's going to happen to all the jobs? It's like, no, again, only half a percent of us could actually contribute to this digital world that we all live in. And with no code, that's going to increase to 20, 30, 40%. So the ideas are going to be, there's going to be such better ideas out there. So many more things to do in the digital world that it's just people have never been able to express. So imagine a doctor that, you know, right now is spending their time probably hiring people to do manual work for them. What if that doctor could just build their own workflow and build their own tool just by describing what that tool should be? There's so many great minds out there that literally can't write. They just don't have the ability to write right now. So that's why I do think we live in the medieval times of the, of the digital world. Yeah, very similar to the movie industry with like, you know, we had film cameras and then we had digital cameras and then we had phones, right? And then all of a sudden, all these videos and films and stories could be told because people of any age or whatever could pick up their phone and capture something and tell the story. And it created and this AI editing of it. Yeah. The, the, the effect, all that other stuff too. And, and everything. And it's just creating more and more. And now content is king. You can never have enough of it. And it's just like, so many people of all walks of life are now contributing and it's creating this really rich ecosystem that's created a ton of new opportunities elsewhere. And I think no code has kind of given us a little bit of that, of putting technology into the hands of the everyday person. And now they can create technology and create more things. And it's going to be all this coming together. And I think it could be really special. I am so excited about the future. And I'm just like grateful that I live in this time and age, right? Of like, I get to see the world develop at such a rapid pace now. And I'm just, I'm super pumped to be here. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Marius, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. We really appreciate you. We will put uh, information of maybe how people can contact you or, and or learn more about Techstars, the program, in the description of this podcast. But otherwise, thank you again for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. That was a fantastic interview with Marius. Super lucky to have him on the podcast. Again, if you guys haven't taken a second to rate and review the podcast, please do. It goes a long way in helping us reach more people and get this word out and allows us to get bigger and better guests to do more things for you all. So please share it to your friends, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Check us out on YouTube, subscribe there. Otherwise, David, it was great having you back this week. And, and well, David, you know what we say, David. Next, we'll see you next week in No Code. We will see you Adios. all next week in No Code. Adios. Adios.